Last week, we spoke to Dr. Jared Rubin, whose work ties into the debate on the Great Divergence, why it is that from a world of surprising resemblances, some countries became richer and other countries became poorer. For Dr. Rubin, one way to explain the divergence between Northwestern Europe and not only the Muslim Middle East, but also Southern Europe, is that political bargaining between different kinds of elites resulted in different kinds of institutions or laws and policies. In Northwestern Europe, you had religious elites with less power, and that allowed economic elites to institutionalize their power in the form of parliaments, which then also led to new policies and new laws that facilitated greater trade and free markets in capital and labor. And this also helps explain why Northwestern Europe, and particularly England, was ready or prepared for the technological leap that resulted in industrialization and why that might not have happened elsewhere. Dr. Rubin's explanation sits squarely within a tradition of economic history or economic analysis that's called new institutionalism. And this emphasizes the importance of institutions like secure property rights and free markets and free trade for economic growth, and ultimately the divergence between countries. But not all scholars fully agree with this kind of institutionalist or new institutionalist position. Following the German thinker Karl Marx, they emphasize deeper changes in the social organization of production and consumption. This is accompanied by changes in ideologies and systems of thought. So it's not just that your material production and consumption is changing, but also the way that you think about production and consumption is changing. Earlier in this second podcast on the emergence of new diseases, I discussed two important characteristics of capitalism because capitalism is the mode of production or the way of organizing production and consumption that we live in. The question is, where does this mode of production come from? What are its origins? And to kind of understand this, we also have to understand two other characteristics of capitalism. So the ones that I spoke about in that earlier episode, first is maximizing profits or in a need or an urge or a drive to maximize profits and accumulation, which we will talk about today. And the other is the production of commodities, the fact that most things that we use are purchased on the market. There's two other components important to understand. First, that labor power becomes a commodity. Now, in many pre-capitalist or what some people call traditional societies, labor was not necessarily that easy to buy and sell. That's why labor markets are considered a form of, of modern economy for many. Most people produced the food that they consumed themselves and they kind of produced other things that they needed mostly themselves, not entirely, but mostly. And they also possessed or owned the land that they used to make that food. So they had control over the means of production, the stuff you need to make other stuff. So they didn't really need to go on the market to sell their labor power for the most part, because they didn't need to go to the market to buy the stuff that they needed to live and to make it to the next day. They were just making that stuff themselves. At the same time, land ownership was often tied up in complex kinds of rights. 
which made it really hard for any one individual to say, this is my land, I can buy it and sell it as I wish. But what happened in England and in other parts of the world, especially other parts of Europe, over the course of centuries leading into the 1500s, 1600s, was a process that is sometimes called the enclosures, where lands that were held in common or lands that were held under certain complex kinds of rights were, you can say they were privatized. They became the private property of certain individuals or certain families. And in order to do this, the kind of upwardly mobile elements, the richer elements, whether they were landlords or richer tenants, had to engage in a kind of class struggle uh, with poorer people or those with less power, because why would you want to leave your land? Why would you want to get dispossessed? Why would you want to become landless? But what happens with this process of enclosure then is that labor becomes freed from the land. The producer is separated from the means of production. And once they're freed from the means of production, they're free to sell their labor to whoever wants to buy it on the market. Now, Marx, when he's talking about this, uses the term free ironically because you don't really have a choice. If you don't sell your labor on the market, you cannot find the stuff you need to reproduce yourself. You can't find your subsistence. So you have to sell your labor on the market. You have to become a waged laborer. This whole process of dispossession points to the second aspect of capitalism, and that's what Marx calls primitive accumulation, or the original accumulation of capital, because the richer elements who were privatizing that land for themselves now could buy and sell that land. It became their alienable private property, and that meant it became their capital. The thing about capital, then, is that it's not simply money or a factor of production that you invest to make a profit, Marx says that capital is actually a social relation between capitalists who own the means of production and workers or the proletariat who sell their labor power to the capitalists so that they can earn their subsistence. But you can probably already tell that in order for capitalism to be capitalism, a lot of stuff seems to have to come together. There has to be this ideology of profit maximization. There has to be generalized commodity production. There has to be the availability of labor power as a commodity. And then the original accumulation of capital in some people's hands as opposed to others. Does this kind of coming together not happen in other parts of the world? Does it not happen in South Asia? Why only England? And what does capitalism have to do with industrialization? or modern economic growth. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the interrelationship between politics and economics, but also talk about how political economy can mean a lot more than just politics and economics. Over the course of this podcast, we will be inviting different speakers and thinkers to share with us the kind of work that they're doing as they approach these kinds of questions. I'm your host, Noman Ali, I'm an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So to better understand the relationship between capitalism and industrialization in The Great Divergence, we invited Dr. Shami Ghosh, assistant professor of history at the University of Toronto in Canada. 
His work is focused on the relationship between literature and economic and social history. He is the author of two books, King Sagas and Norwegian History, Problems and Perspectives, as well as Writing the Barbarian Past, Studies in Early Medieval Historical Narrative. Dr. Ghosh focuses on rural, economic, and social history, especially of Germanic-speaking regions. Let's hear from Dr. Ghosh. I primarily study medieval European history, so roughly speaking, the history of Europe or Western Europe between around the 5th and the 16th centuries. But I also have an interest in comparative global economic history extending up to the 18th century. And in the latter field, my interest tends to be rather more theoretical, trying to examine big questions like the origins of capitalism, the great divergence debate. My main research project at the moment is examining the process of commercialization in rural southern Germany. I guess the main driving force behind that interest is how and why did we become from a society primarily of producers to a society of consumers. That is to say, from a society in which most people produced most of what they consumed to a society in which most people don't produce any of what they consume. Most of us are actually buying things off of the market, basically. Exactly. Um, So how did you get into the research interests that you do have? What brought you to it? So I've always been interested in economic history, and I read the work of Eric Hobsbawm and E.P. Thompson when I was a teenager, and both of them influenced me quite a bit. Thompson, because of his history from below approach, how he looked at the working class and historicized the origins of a working class and what that meant, what it meant to be working class. Hobsbawm, because of how well he managed to integrate what in Marxist terms would be called the histories of the base and the superstructure, which he himself said was his main interest to try and understand how the material basis of society, production of goods, the consumption of goods, things that are needed for subsistence, how that related to what in Marxist terms would be called the superstructure of religion and culture and ideology and politics. That sort of stuck with me. And then while I was a graduate student, I took part in a graduate seminar on the origins of capitalism which gave me a sort of a subject for my future research, which is trying to understand the origins of capitalism and related to that, the origins of what I see as a precondition to capitalism, which is a highly commercialized society in which most people are in some way or the other dependent on the market. So what's what's interesting, you know, just from the titles of your book, like Norwegian history or writing the barbarian past, that doesn't seem very connected to the origins of capitalism or even to material bases of production and stuff like that? Well, I suppose in my own work, I've tried to combine my interest in the base and the superstructure. My first degree was in German literature, and I have a literary background, and I still work to some extent on literature. And uh, those books are not connected with my research on the origins of capitalism or economic history at all. And I think the way I can answer that question is by saying that I have a deep interest in uh, fundamental questions of morality. That is to say, I believe that studying history and literature, which are my principal subjects, can help us to think about 
both what it means to be human and about one of the principal characteristics of what it means to be human, which is the fact that humans ask the question, what does it mean to be good? And studying history can help us try and understand how humans have dealt with that question in the past, as can literature. Now, this doesn't seem as though it relates very much to the origins of capitalism, I guess, but it does. And the way it does is because I see economics as fundamentally a moral issue. My understanding of economic history is the history of how people relate to each other and the resources that they need or desire to consume. Those resources are obviously the environment around us. And I believe that the relationship of human beings to the environment is also a moral issue, which given present circumstances, I don't think I really need to elaborate on why I think that. And therefore, the economic history is for me not just a matter of numbers of figures of production and wages and profits and things like that. It's about how people interact with the natural world around them to get their resources, to exploit those resources, and how they interact with the other people who do the work in many cases of actually exploiting those resources, and how those people themselves then get exploited by other people. All of this means that there are fundamental moral questions to consider in terms of what do we do to get hold of the things that we want or need. I laid this out in somewhat more detail in a review of a book that I wrote many years ago. Uh, The book was called Medieval Market Morality. And people often wonder, especially people trained in sort of what is now the orthodox school of economics, people might wonder what do markets have to do with morality? And the answer is that in the Middle Ages, markets had a lot to do with morality because a market is a locus of exchange. A market is a place where people go, in the Middle Ages at least, they went to purchase mostly the things that they needed. And the moral questions that arise over here are manifold, beginning with perhaps the question as to what is a just price. And if you are selling grain, which somebody else needs, How much can you charge for it? And can you charge so much that your material comforts can be at a higher level than the material comforts of those people who are buying the grain from you? This is obviously a a question that you could say is a strictly economic question. And the answer that economists would give is the just price is the price that the market can bear. But that is evading the moral issue. And there is a moral issue. And that moral issue comes into being especially in times of scarcity, when people would then have to ask, and they did ask in the Middle Ages, is it right to make a profit by charging higher prices when something is scarce? Is that something which is a good thing or a bad thing? What do you do when somebody is charging more money because they're bringing goods from far away? Should they be charging? How much more can they be charging What do you do in terms of credit and debt? Is it right to be able to make a profit, to be able to make a living, but even more than that, to be able to make a better living than the person to whom you're lending money to? Is that something which is a good thing or a bad thing? Now, these are all moral issues, and these moral issues remain with us today. I think 
well, I don't know if I should be spelling it out over here, but the the way the economies of the world have been behaving for the past 15 years, the fact that in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, we have seen lots of ordinary people lose their homes, lose their money, lose their jobs, but we have also seen the increase in the number of billionaires around the world. These are, as far as I'm concerned, inescapably moral issues. So what has driven my work and kept it together is the fact that in, say, some of my work on medieval literature, I examine how that literature deals with the problem of how to be good. And in my work on economic history, I examine also what it might have meant to be good and what the kinds of structural changes that took place implied with regard to how easy or difficult it was to be good. That's really interesting because even my interest in political economy, although on, on some level it is it is driven by these kinds of questions about morality, justice, and power also, but I'm not as explicit as, as you are, uh, even in my own thinking, or, or as reflexive as you are. So I think what you just accounted for gives me reason to pause and, and think about how I articulate my own interest in uh, in the subject. But so if, if that is your motivation, and it, it seems like a very strong one in terms of the, the relationship between morality and economic relations, what are some of the frustrations or challenges that you found in the kind of work that you've pursued? The frustrations are at one level very obvious. If I want to learn from the past something about how one can be good, the past unfortunately gives us a lot of lessons about how human beings aren't good and how they don't learn from the past. And our present situation doesn't necessarily induce a lot of hope that it will be possible to learn from the past and change anything. Because, to be honest, it seems like it's a little too late to be doing the kind of learning from the past that I'm trying to be doing. So that is one frustration. The other frustration that I faced is, of course, that economic history, especially in the past 20 or 30 years, has moved very far away from any kind of consideration of these sorts of issues. Economics as a discipline has, of course, for quite a long time tried to think of itself as a science. And it has tried to think of itself as a science because it believes that there are laws of economics. Uh, now, these laws of economics never actually work if you examine any kind of economic system. And these laws also, unlike, say, some of the basic laws of physics, they are notoriously bad at predicting anything. And in fact, they haven't predicted most of the bad things that have happened. But economic history... Until about the 1980s, economic history, at least in the English language and also in French, was still influenced and close to social history and questions related to how society functions. But since, and I think one of the reasons why this is the case is because there was at that point still a fairly strong influence of the British Marxist school of economic and social history, where economic and social history was seen together. But in the last 20 years, especially, and this is, is something that can be more or less accurately dated to sort of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of Soviet Russia, all of these kind of ideas coming from the left have been thought to be invalid. And therefore, there's become one very dominant view of economics and therefore of economic history, which is essentially neoliberal economics, which 
therefore doesn't really consider questions of social structure, of class, or even of morality. So talking to economic historians becomes very difficult because they are basically engaged in trying to mine the data, even from the Middle Ages, to produce a more or less triumphalist narrative, which tells a story of increasing growth that follows on from a removal of institutional obstacles and therefore allows for a market to be free. And this paradigm takes it for granted that if you remove institutional obstacles, people are going to want to engage in greater exchange. They're going to want to specialize more and more, and they're going to want to make more profit, and therefore the economy will grow. Many people refuse or are unable to see that this view is ideologically conditioned and trying to talk to them and persuade them even that my work is relevant can be quite a challenge. Well, this maybe is a is a great way then to uh, have the first part of her discussion, which is on this debate on the great divergence. So uh, I had a discussion with uh, Dr. Jared Rubin, who has discussed why Western Europe in particular pulled ahead while the Middle East and particularly the Ottoman Empire stayed back. And uh, he has a very interesting explanation about contradictions or, or conflicts between economic elites, who are people who were maybe commercial farmers, merchants, basically people who wanted to trade goods in order to make profits, and uh, religious elites or military elites or other kinds of elites whose interests were maybe not uh, necessarily aligned with those of these other economic elites. And basically, his his point comes down to the fact that in Western Europe, the elements of a modern economy were available by, say, the 1700s, which, which then created a fertile ground for industrialization. So he doesn't say that industrial economy is the same as modern economy. But this modern economy included uh, secure property rights, which basically meant that the king or the monarch or the sultan wasn't trying to take over people's land or money for himself or herself, but usually himself. So secure property rights are very important. And then uh, markets, markets and land, markets and labor, markets and capital, which may not have existed before, now became common in Northwestern Europe. And that enabled urbanization, or rather urbanization is one indicator of this kind of modern economy and of economic sophistication. And that then this kind of explains or helps us explain. So he's very careful to say that that this does not automatically explain industrialization, but that if you were to look in, in the world for where may industrialization actually pick up, it would probably be Western, Northwestern Europe because they had these things. But the question for me then is, did South Asia not have these things? My understanding of history is that South Asia did have you know, if you want a recipe book, secure property rights, yeah, in many places, robust uh, markets, long distance and internal markets, absolutely. Commercial institutions like banks, yes, very much so, so on and so forth. So I guess the question I have for you right now is what did the South Asian economy look like prior to, say, colonialism, prior to the totality of what we talk about as a great divergence? Okay, well, 
I want to start by talking about Europe a little bit and also by talking about geography because what tends to happen in these kinds of discussions is that Europe isn't Europe. What people are talking about is England and the Dutch Republic. But then when they talk about other parts of the world, they will say something like South Asia or China. Now, we need to remember that South Asia, if we include in South Asia the modern countries of Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, uh, that is, a, you know, that covers a landmass which is almost the size of the European Union. That's quite a lot. And to compare South Asia with England and the Dutch Republic is not a very fair comparison. So let me talk about Europe a little bit. When people talk about all of these conditions, they tend to talk about England and the Dutch Republic, which were more democratic and which had a more centralized uh, market. For example, the region I work on is what is now called Germany. Compared to England, Germany had a lot of institutional problems. There were lots of boundaries, boundaries because of fragmented political structures. These boundaries meant that trade was hindered, apparently, according to the theory of most people, by lots of tolls and taxes that had to be paid every time anything had to cross a boundary. So there were restrictions on free trade. Weights and measures and currencies were not unified as they were in England and the Netherlands. And these were also restrictions on free trade because even the legal systems and the customs would differ, unlike in a centralized place like England. There was uh, not a sort of a centralized system of justice to which people engaged in trade could turn, which could guarantee um, the harmonious and relatively cost-free resolution of conflicts engaged that, that might come about from trade. And the lack, therefore, of a centralized public institutional system of justice is also seen to be a hindrance on free trade. Now, what I have found in my work is that actually, when people want to do something, they find a way around these obstacles. So, for example, one scholar has seen the fact that there were sumptuary laws, laws uh, restricting or dictating what people could, could wear, some scholars might see an increase in the passing of such laws as meaning that people didn't and couldn't purchase these different kinds of clothing. But in fact, I think that when many laws are being passed and when the same sort of law gets passed and repeated year after year, and when increasingly large numbers of people are brought into a court and fined for wearing the wrong kinds of clothing, what this means is that people are actually wearing the wrong kinds of clothing. They're buying the wrong kinds of clothing. Their consumption habits are changing. And they're doing this in spite of the institutional, the legal obstacle of the laws and the courts, which try and hinder them from changing their consumption habits. So what I found that in the regions of Germany where I work, which is sort of southern Germany, which the now the states of Germany, which are Baden-Württemberg and Bavaria, and northern Switzerland, there was a lot of actual integration, even though there was not a lot of political integration, in that the industrialization of Switzerland and before industrialization, the production of textiles, the craft production through the putting out system of textiles in northern Switzerland was fueled by the import of raw materials from southern Germany. There was a huge 
increase in commercialization and market dependence. The peasant production in many parts of southern Germany was dependent on the Swiss markets in order to survive. And this despite the fact that even within Germany, there were many institutional barriers to exporting the grain and the flax that they were sending to the industrializing areas of Switzerland. And then, of course, they had to cross a national border. And in fact, the relationship between the agrarian regions of southern Germany and the manufacturing regions of northern Switzerland is very similar, despite the institutional barriers, to the relationship between the agrarian regions of southern England and the manufacturing regions of northern England. So that's one reason why, at a very empirical level, I am not very happy with an argument that brings up institutional barriers as a hindrance and says that the moment these institutional barriers go, things will change. So moving to South Asia, I think talking about South Asia as a whole doesn't make any sense. We need to talk about regions and we need to talk about regions and their interactions with other regions. So we see, for example, Mysore or the Coromandel Coast. These are regions which are also heavily dependent on trade. One of the things that, for example, Sanjay Subramaniam has shown is that the Coromandel Coast, which is the coast of what is now sort of northern Tamil Nadu and southern Andhra Pradesh, these coast areas, they were engaged in producing a lot of textiles, which is one of the reasons why the British and the French ended up landing there and wanting to take these textiles. But their textile production and indeed their uh, basic subsistence was often dependent on products, raw materials that had been brought from hundreds of miles away across all kinds of institutional boundaries by trading caravans, the Banjara traders. Similarly, Gujarat was a place where a lot of weaving took place and that was dependent on raw materials coming from eastern India. These things happened without institutional integration. As a result of that, I don't think that institutional integration is really the answer to any of these questions. In terms of what institutions did exist, yes, banking institutions existed. They were in many places securized to property. There was effectively trade, even if, and a lot of trade, even if the trade was not necessarily that free in South Asia. What this can tell us about where South Asia might have gone is a different question. And I think what bothers me about many of these these theories is that there is an assumption that growth will follow when barriers to growth are removed. And I think that assumption needs to be questioned because, well, I suppose my question is, why will growth follow if there are no barriers to growth? That's a that's a really good question. I guess if I could, if I would take a stab at it, there there would be an assumption that just human activity naturally desires growth or naturally achieves growth, and so if you unleash human potential, then you will you will see that uh, that there will be growth. And I think that even drives these days a lot of NGOs and charities are interested in saying how do we support the entrepreneurialism of you know say women in villages in India or in Bangladesh or in Pakistan. And so what we'll do is we'll give them small loans so that they can start businesses and and they're naturally entrepreneurial. They will naturally do growth generating activities. But what's what's holding them back is these kinds of barriers. Well, um, I think I would take issue with the assumption that 
there is a natural propensity for growth. And and let's be a little bit clear about what we're talking about. There is a difference between, uh, uh, we, we're talking about growth in productivity rather than growth in production. So if you have an increasing population and they need more food and clothes and they start producing more food and clothes, that is not necessarily economic growth as such, right? What we are thinking about and what the economic theories which talk about modern economic growth or capitalism, what they're thinking about is exponential growth caused by a growth in productivity rather than just a growth in production. A growth in productivity happens when you have increasing surpluses. In the first instance, increasing surpluses of primary production of subsistence commodities and raw materials, but then a sufficient increase in the productivity, a sufficient increase in the production relative to population of these raw materials so that the surplus can support a larger percentage of the population engaged in doing other things such as processing these primary commodities into consumable items or increasingly in what we would now call the service sector. So that's one particular kind of growth, and that's growth in productivity, which is what we're interested in over here. Now, I don't see any reason to believe, and there is plenty of empirical evidence to show, that there is no natural propensity for growth in productivity. And when you talk about unleashing human potential, growth will happen. Well, that just assumes that human potential is interested in economic growth. But suppose human potential is interested instead in pondering the nature of life or in creating works of art or something along those lines. Why should we assume that human potential is fundamentally more interested in economic growth, in increasing productivity, in increasing profits, than it is interested in something else? And even if we do not make that assumption, and let's leave the assumption that humans are somehow naturally or just the natural state of the universe is increasing productivity. Nevertheless, the question of the great divergence does seem to come down to the question of what enabled Europe, and as you said, particularly England and the Dutch Republic, to uh, take off in terms of productivity and why the rest of the world got left behind. And often the argument is that this had to do with technological innovation. And I guess Malthus, the, Thomas Malthus, the famous political economist, his argument was that uh, natural resources or the resources that we draw on, they kind of grow steadily. They grow in a linear way, but human populations have this exponential growth. They grow f- much faster. And so eventually human populations will outstrip the resources that are available to us. And this is this is called the Malthusian trap. But technology and productivity, as you say, modern economic growth enabled us to escape the the resource trap because it allowed resource growth or or the or this, the growth of stuff that we consume to grow exponentially and therefore not only keep up with population growth but outpace it so generally the idea or the argument is that the productivity enabled by technology is really what enabled england to get ahead and what kept uh, the rest of the world back and even now the, the questions that uh, we discuss in this class and other classes or in other kind of fora is how will so-called underdeveloped countries catch up 
And by catch up, we mean how will they achieve the same levels of productivity growth that will enable them to have the same kind of living standards. So if we go back to this question of, of history, many scholars then argue that South Asia did not have technology. They did not have the technological transition that England did. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this and what some of the arguments are around why South Asia may not have achieved it, why England may have achieved it, and what your views are on that. Sure. Uh, this is a very complicated set of questions, so I'm going to try and simplify them, but there's a limit to how much simplification is going to make any sense. So you will have to bear with me while I give you what might be a set of complicated propositions to consider. One of the things that I want to point out is that there has yet to be any kind of empirical demonstration that there has ever been any kind of Malthusian trap at any point in history at any place in the world. Uh, the Malthusian trap is something which has to be examined very carefully. And uh, I suppose some of your students might be familiar with the work of Amartya Sen. One of the things that he demonstrated is that famines very often happen not because of a lack of stuff, not because there isn't enough food available, but because of what he called a problem of entitlements. And this relates again to what I was talking about with regard to the morality of the market. Entitlements have to do with who is able to access what is being sold. And let's say we're in a situation in which prices are high. According to conventional economic theory, what ought to happen is the market will bear the price. The price will be as high as what the market can bear and the market can bear a price as high as what people are willing to pay. Now, suppose there is a finite amount of stuff, let's say some kind of grain, and we have a value of 100. 100 is the amount of grain that is available. And there are 100 people, and each person wants one unit of grain. Then you could say that this, this idea of the market adjusting the price to what people can pay would work because everyone wants the same amount of grain and there is just enough grain for everyone and therefore they will all pay the same price. But suppose you've got a situation in which your grain is set at 100 and the number of people are 100 but 50 of those people want two units of grain whereas the other 50 just want one unit of grain. Now you need 150 units of grain and let's assume that the people who want two units of grain are willing to pay more. Or let's make it even simpler. And let's assume that only 10 people want five units of grain and the other want one unit of grain. But those 10 people are willing to pay more for the amount of grain that they want. Then you get a situation in which the price of grain starts going up and effectively people start getting excluded from the market. So you can have a situation in which you have enough stuff to go around, but people can't access the stuff because there are also enough people who are willing to pay more. And this is something that's illustrated very uh, explicitly, for example, in my field of history by uh, an article by E.P. Thompson called The Moral Economy of the English Crowd in the 18th Century, where he points out that because of the price of wheat in London, a lot of traders would pay 
a very large sum of money for wheat in the countryside and take it to London to sell it over there. And what they were paying for wheat in the countryside was more than the people in that countryside could afford to pay for wheat. But those people in the countryside also needed their wheat. And they were effectively excluded from the market. The other thing about the Malthusian trap is that since we don't have any evidence that the Malthusian trap actually existed, we can't say that technology came into place to get out of a Malthusian trap. You have to remember that the industrialization of England was in the first instance primarily the use of machines to produce cloth, whereas the Malthusian trap is about how much, how large a human population the resources can support, and that means food production. So it's a fallacy to think that technology in actual fact, in terms of what happened in the Industrial Revolution, that technology was used to avoid a subsistence crisis. It was not. Industrialization was driven by an effort to produce cloth rather than by an effort to produce more food. The reason I'm talking about this is because it's very important to think about what the drivers for growth are. And one of the drivers for growth is whether or not people want something and how much they're willing to pay for the something that they want. Now, when we start thinking about divergence and we start thinking about where we are in terms of South Asia during the period of the Great Divergence versus England during the period of the Great Divergence, one of the important things to remember is why would people want industrialization? Why should you start inventing and using machines to produce cotton? After all, the invention of a machine takes a certain amount of time and intellectual labor. The production of machines takes quite a lot of resources. Training of people to use those machines, that takes even more resources. One of the arguments that has been given by uh, Prasannan Parthasarathy, for example, is that there was no need for technological innovation in South Asia because the textiles that they produced without machines were far better than the textiles that they produced in Europe, even with machines. And this is, you know, it's hard to dispute this, given that so much of the transcontinental trade, the East India companies of various uh, countries, they came to Asia to buy cotton cloth. If they found that cotton cloth so attractive, it must have been pretty good. Otherwise, they wouldn't be willing to come there to buy it. And therefore, there was an incentive for people in England to try and create machines which could manufacture this kind of cloth as cheaply as what they could acquire from South Asia. So that's one argument as to why South Asia did not actually end up industrializing. They didn't need to. They were able to produce the stuff without the machines. Whereas in England, they needed to because they didn't have the ability to do it without the machines, they weren't able to produce it cheaply enough. One problem with this argument then is why did the Dutch Republic also not industrialize? Why didn't they start using machines to produce cloth the way they did in England? And that's an argument which is unfortunately most often ignored in the economic history. So given this, that uh, the point you raised and a very important one that maybe the reason that India or Indian states or Indian regions did not develop the kind of technology that England did, as you say, Prasad and Parthasarathy says, they simply did not have the need. 
but then you 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 say interestingly that the Dutch Republic did also did not develop that technology. And if that's if that's one part of it, a, a different way of saying it is why did England go for technology? Why did the Dutch Republic not? And why did then these different South Asian regions or states not try to develop technology to say catch up with England if they saw that it was progressing? And why do you think ultimately it is that England goes for for technology in a way that uh, other parts of the world seem not to? Okay, so there are many questions here, and I'm going to try and take them one by one. The first question let me talk about is the Dutch Republic. What happened is that if you look at the indicators of the economy around 1750, if you look at the human capital, that is to say, the occupational diversity, literacy, if you look at institutional factors such as barriers to free trade, free markets, a centralized public system of justice, which could reduce, therefore, opportunity costs. If you look at the level of the wages, the commercialization, the extent of market dependence, how accustomed people were to markets, if you look at any of these factors, you will find that the Dutch Republic compares very well to England. And in many, for many of these factors, the Dutch Republic is actually further ahead than England. But one interesting thing about the Dutch Republic in the second half of the 18th century is that the taxation regime starts to become slightly more progressive. We are talking, when I say progressive, uh, what I'm talking about is within the context of the 18th century, obviously not talking about progressive in a modern sense for now, but the taxation regime becomes a little bit more progressive. There is a little bit more redistribution and there is a little bit of an increase in the living standards of the lowest classes of people. This does not happen in England. What happens in England, along with industrialization, is a serious decline in living standards. And in fact, many historians have demonstrated that arguably living standards as a whole in England did not match the living standards in England of the 15th century until at least 1850, if not 1870. And there was no consistent rise in living standards until, again, at least the 1840s or 1850s. So that suggests that there are somewhat different kinds of interests at play over here because the Dutch had access to coal, they had access to peat, they had access to British technology. They could have industrialized had they wanted to almost at the same time that the British did. And in fact, the use of industrial technology for the production of textiles came earlier in Belgium and Switzerland than it did to the Dutch Republic. And if you look at the indicators of economic growth of industrialization over a course of about 100 years between 1770 and 1870, you find that while the Dutch were ahead of pretty much everyone else, including the English in 1770, by 1870, you find the Swiss and the Belgians have a higher rate of industrialization and sort of comparable rates of occupational diversity as the Dutch. Why is this the case? I don't have an answer to that, but the answer that I'm going to suggest might be plausible has got to do with a kind of different set of interests and how they played out in the politics and the structure of the economy, a set of interests which were perhaps less focused on profit maximization. And that's a point that I can come back to later if our discussion goes there. 
But that's something that I think is important to think about. Now, when we get to South Asia, there's an unfortunate fact that we cannot ignore. And given that this fact is simply a fact, we also can't do too much in terms of thinking what might have been had this fact not been there. And that fact, of course, is the British Empire and colonialism. It's very hard to come up with an argument about what South Asia might have looked like in 1850 and how much industrialization might have happened by 1850 had there not been a British empire. This is where I have a problem with people like Parthasarthi, is that he assumes that if there had not been colonialism, then India might have industrialized if there had been a need to do so to compete effectively with British cloth produced on British machines. This again is the assumption that there will always be a push for growth and a push for greater profit. And the only reason that an economy will not try and achieve growth and profit is because either it is achieving enough growth and profit already, so it doesn't need to change, or because it is being constricted. And the argument of many scholars is that in the case of South Asia, you have until about 1770, the first proposition, which is that the cloth produced there was already more than competitive with cloth produced in Europe, and therefore there was no need for industrialization. And then in the decades after 1770, as the British textile industry starts to industrialize, what you get is also the increasing weight of colonialism in South Asia, so that innovation, technological innovation, is not possible, it's not allowed, and where there is technological innovation, it is rigorously controlled by the British, so therefore it is not possible to see a transformation to modern economic growth. Now, I will not argue about the negative effects of colonialism, I think that these effects were real effects, but I don't really see how we can say that just because in many respects South Asian economies or some parts of South Asian economies were comparable to the economies of England or the Dutch Republic around 1750, that does not allow us to say that had there not been colonialism, these economies would also have industrialized and would still have looked like the economies of England and the Dutch Republic in 1850. We simply don't know. So we, we are then left with a bunch of what ifs. But then I guess we can then ask the question, why does industrialization happen, in your opinion, in, uh, in England? What's the, what's the key driver there? Yes, we can ask that question. We can also ask a question regarding South Asia in terms of the what if. And I think this is where I get back to the point of ideology. So modern economic growth can only happen in a highly commercialized economy because modern economic growth depends, to begin with, on the production of an agrarian surplus. And by agrarian surplus, I mean not just the production of food, but the production of other raw materials, such as in Europe, flax for producing cloth, or in South Asia and uh, Africa, the production of cotton, of raw cotton, to be able to produce cotton cloth. There's got to be a surplus so that there's a large enough surplus that the people who are doing the producing on the land are producing enough to sell to people who are going to be engaged in 
turning these raw materials into manufactured goods in the case of things like cotton or just to eat. If you have a large number of people who are not producing food but are instead turning uh, fiber into cloth, these people need to eat. And that means that you need to have enough of a surplus of food produced in the countryside to feed these people who are not themselves producing food. And that means you also have to have an effective system of exchange. So modern economic growth, industrialization, these are things that are only possible once you have already got a system of exchange that works and a large amount of surplus production. All the evidence shows that both of these things existed in many regions of South Asia, at least as much so, if not more so, than in many parts of Europe, including England. So the question then is, why does England industrialize? And there are many theories about this. My own take on it is there must have been a drive at some level for profit. And we can see this looking at some of the, I guess, the the more literary or philosophical sources from the 17th and the 18th centuries, where increasingly there is a discourse that talks about industriousness being good. There is there was a dissatisfaction with many manufacturers about and and even farmers that if they increase the wage of their workers, this is not an incentive for the worker to work more. This makes the worker work less because for less work, the person gets the same amount of money. And this is condemned as laziness. And there is an increasing discourse of needing to increase the industriousness of workers so that they produce more so that the person who is employing these workers can make more profit. There is a talk of farms being businesses of a need for growth, of growth as a virtue, of productivity as a virtue. All of this suggests that people were more and more interested in thinking about the economy as a means of making more money, as a means of producing more stuff, and as a means of growth, therefore. The flip side of this, of course, is that if you're producing more cloth, you need to have people who are going to buy the cloth. And this is where one of the things that happens is with the increasing dispossession from land of the rural lower classes, they also lose access to the means of production, the means of subsistence themselves, and therefore they become more dependent on the market. One of the interesting things that happens over the process of industrialization is that wages get increasingly lower so that people have to work harder to produce the same amount of stuff and earn the same wage. And then they take that wage to buy the stuff that they produce, the cheap cotton cloth. It's not clear to me that there was a similar ideological impulse in South Asia, that there was a similar discourse about the need for industriousness, that peasants were condemned for being lazy if they only wanted to earn a certain amount and then they didn't want to work anymore, that uh, there was an increasing discourse that a farm is a business rather than a subsistence-producing household economy, that there was a discourse about the need for growth and the need for profit. Now, the fact that I don't know that there was such a discourse doesn't mean that there wasn't, and very little has been done, as far as I know, nothing has been done to try and study what kind of discussion there might have been about what an economy is and what these various economic functions are for, whether they are for subsistence or whether they are for growth and profit. So one thing that we could do in terms of thinking about the what if question 
is to examine whether in South Asia, in regions of South Asia where you already have highly commercialized economies, whether there was also a discourse of industriousness, of growth and profit of the kind that there was in England. And if there was such a discourse, then we might be able to say that had there not been colonialism, there was still an ideological motive pushing for profit maximization and growth, and therefore industrialization and the origins of capitalism might have happened in South Asia. One of the things you mentioned in this discussion of industriousness and pushing for industriousness is that many of the people who were working in these factories or working in manufactories producing cloth had been dispossessed from rural areas. And so that then gave them an incentive to work so that they could then buy the stuff they needed to live. Can you tell us a little bit more about this kind of rural dispossession? Because my understanding is that for Karl Marx, when you have so many people dispossessed from lands, they form a a really good possible reservoir of cheap labor. So can you tell us a little bit more about rural dispossession and how it connects to industriousness? Yeah, so there are there is a theory about industriousness by Jan de Vries, and there are actually two forms. I would say there are two forms of industriousness. Jan de Vries identifies a kind of industriousness which he believes has to do with people wanting to work harder to increase the household income to be able to consume more. And he's able to find a certain amount of evidence for this, normally among the sort of the upper classes of the lower classes, if I can put it that way. The other kind of industriousness is where people have to work harder in order to produce more just to be able to subsist. And de Vries ignores this. And I think there was actually quite a lot of this. There's a lot of evidence. There's been a lot of scholarship to show that it was a long process of dispossession. And what Robert Brenner argues about in the 15th and 16th centuries is the enclosure of lands so that larger farmers had um, a large access to a larger chunk of land, which they could farm more productively. But during this process, large numbers of people still retained access to small amounts of land, and they still had access to unenclosed commons. Now, this would not be enough to provide them to provide a household with everything that it needed for its subsistence. But there were two factors which helped. One is that there was a life cycle, uh, the, the, the institution of life cycle servanthood. People would, for years in their lives, become servants. And then when their parents died, they would inherit a small plot of land and they would be independent and they would enter into some kind of daily wage labor relationship or they would be producing small crafts or something like that. Life cycle service in England tended to be run on yearly contracts and the people in service tend to be given food and lodging and a certain amount of clothing as a part of their wage. So they were not dependent on the market. They didn't need to buy these things on the market. And what happened in the late 18th and the early 19th century is that the institution of life cycle service of this kind on yearly contracts with board and lodging, it basically disappeared. And instead, you got people who were daily laborers, daily wage laborers, who now were paid a daily wage but they weren't given food, they weren't given clothing, and they weren't given lodging. So they were now a source of demand, 
and they needed to work harder to get a wage so that they could pay for all of these things that they needed. The other thing that happened is a large-scale enclosure of commons, which meant that people could not, if they had, say, a small garden plot and they had a cow, they couldn't take their cow to graze on the commons. So therefore, they couldn't keep a cow anymore because they had no grazing land. And keeping a cow and keeping some other animals, a sheep, a few pigs, something like that, who could be fed off the commons, could actually provide for a significant portion of the household's calorie intake. And if that no longer was possible, then they needed to work harder in order to be able to get enough money to be able to buy the stuff that they needed for this kind of calorie intake. So this is what's happening in terms of the dispossession of people. Again, I don't believe there's been very much scholarship on South Asia about whether such things were happening there and to what extent they were happening there. But this creates both a labor force that needs to work in order to subsist and simultaneously creates in this very same labor force a market for the production of what what these people make because they no longer have the time or the resources to produce things that they need themselves. They must now buy them on the market and what they're buying is things produced by themselves or other people just like them. Okay, here you've covered kind of the lower classes of the lower classes, and they have to turn to industriousness, hard work, etc., because they have no other choice. They've been dispossessed through various mechanisms, and they now have to go on the market. They have become consumers, somewhat in a way against their will almost. But then you're talking about the upper classes of the lower classes, so maybe upwardly mobile elements, and then new middle classes, new emerging businessmen or business families, and then, of course, the old landlords who always had money or access to resources, and that they also increasingly imbibed this ideology of industriousness to get a hold of you know, maybe luxury goods from foreign markets or the stuff that was now being produced increasingly in England. In all this discussion we've had about the drive of some elites, commercial elites, who then became manufacturing elites to increase their profits, or the discussion of industriousness, we've still not discussed the category of capitalism, which is very important in your work. You say, look, if you want to understand the Great Divergence, you have to understand the category of capitalism. So how do these elements that we've just been talking about relate to the concept of capitalism? So when I tell my students, look, what do we mean by capitalism? Generally, it's a word that's more used by heterodox economists than orthodox economists. Orthodox economists are simply looking at markets, whereas a Marxist will say, no, there's a specific mode of production and you have to look at how production is organized, how trade is organized, how consumption is happening. And we've been talking about some of those things, but I think you've talked about the ideologically driven need for profit as being very, very crucial. That may not be a typical Marxist definition, may not have that, or maybe it does, and, and I I just wasn't reading closely. So how does the category of capitalism fit in? That's, that's uh, I guess, one question. And I, and I have another question, which I just want to signpost here so that we don't forget it, which is... You've talked about the industriousness and, and drive for profit in England, but we still don't understand, I still don't understand, those same kinds of classes did exist, as you've pointed out, in the Dutch Republic, or even in France. There were people who were engaged in long-distance trade. They had their plantations of sugar in Haiti and in other colonies. 
and they had the incentive to sell more to people and they and to make more profits or maybe they did not but where does this ideology then come from so max weber's famous argument is that it's a consequence of a protestant ethic that protestantism drives these people to be more hard working but do you agree with weber so let's deal first with the category of capitalism and then let's deal with why england and not other colonial powers imperialist powers which don't industrialize so i'm not going to go into the details of weber and the protestant ethic but i do want to say that that weber and marx are not actually as much opposites as people sometimes think weber didn't believe that it was only in the realm of ideology that economic change happens and marx also believed rather less strongly that it is only in the realm of economics that economic change happens he was quite open to ideological influences i myself think that it is and should be possible to find some sort of synthesis of weber and marx now in terms of capitalism where that fits into all of this a lot of that is going to depend on how you choose to define capitalism there's one way of defining capitalism which has got to do with a particular set of class relations it has got to do with the exploitation of a working class a proletariat by a class of people who own the means of production that is to say you have a large class of people who have as marx said they have nothing to sell but themselves they have only their labor that they can sell and they must sell their labor in order to be able to earn in order to be able to subsist these are the working class and then you have people who own the means of production and this is where the change happens in classical marx's theory from a pre-capitalist to a capitalist economy in the earlier system the producers also had direct access to the means of production in the capitalist system they don't have direct access to the means of production this is owned by the capitalist class who then exploit the working class in order to produce that's a definition of capitalism that i'm quite happy with but i think it must go further than that and many marxist scholars have actually taken it further than that and they would say that a capitalist economy is defined not just by these class structures but equally by the fact that there is a need for constant profit maximization that is to say the capitalist class is not content only to keep exploiting the working class in order to achieve one particular rate of profit they must constantly want to increase their rate of profit and they do this by constantly reinvesting in capital that is to say the means of production to find ways in which they can keep increasing productivity and thereby keep increasing profit now as an aside i want to say that one thing that a lot of marxist theory has ignored is that this increase in productivity and this increase therefore in profit is only possible if somebody is buying the stuff that results from the increased productivity in other words demand is very important and this is a weak point for weber as well because when he talks about the protestant ethic he talks about people who are not interested in making a lot of money and spending it because they believe that their god given calling is to keep increasing productivity rather than to spend their stuff but he doesn't think about the fact that if they increase the productivity there has to be somebody else who is spending money to buy that stuff in other words demand is fundamental okay so 
if you accept the definition of capitalism that it's got a particular set of class relations, but it also has a need for profit maximization, that is where the ideology comes in. Because what is a need for profit maximization if not something ideological? There is never any need for profit maximization from a, a purely subsistence point of view. In traditional economies, rich people would spend a lot of money on various luxury items, but they may not have wanted always to spend more on anything. And the urge in capitalism is indeed not necessarily an urge, and this is something that Weber did correctly identify. It's not necessarily an urge of the capitalist to increase profit in order to live a more luxurious life. That may be there, or that may not be there, but the urge for profit maximization is always there. And the urge for profit maximization is there ultimately only because in a capitalist system, profit is believed to be something like an absolute good. It's something that has always puzzled me that in an economy which is prosperous and where the population is not growing, if the growth rate starts to drop below whatever, 1% or 1.5%, that is seen to be something which is a foreboding of doom. But why does the economy need to keep growing? There doesn't seem to be any explanation to this from the side of the orthodox economists. They just believe that growth is good. That's the ideological part. So why England and not the Dutch Republic? I don't know because I haven't investigated the ideological differences myself and I don't know if anybody else has. But that is one very possible reason. And it's interesting that when Jan de Vries examines the discourse of industriousness, pretty much all of his sources for the discourse of industriousness are in fact from England, even though he spent his whole life studying the Dutch economy. So maybe there wasn't such a discourse of industriousness and such a discourse of needing profits in the Dutch Republic as there was in England. That's at least one hypothesis which I think deserves to be tested. And then, of course, one could test something similar with regard to South Asia too. But those hypotheses have not yet been tested in South Asia. And I'm, I'm curious as to why not. Is it because the data does not exist? Is it because the questions simply have not been asked? Is it because they were not thought to be important to ask about South Asia? There's just so much that we don't know. So how do you think we can chart an agenda, especially for students who are listening or uh, interested listeners who would want to investigate these questions more? W what's holding this back? And, and where do you think the historiography needs to go? There are two reasons. A lot of South Asian economic history, sort of pre-modern economic history, was dominated by the so-called Aligarh school, which was a Marxist school led by Irfan Habib, who declared in 1969 that India had no potentiality for capitalistic growth. Now, he did this while simultaneously pointing out that India was highly commercialized, that India had a high rate of urbanization, and so on and so forth. But he was too wedded to Marxist theory and to Marx himself, who believed that there was no rise of proletariat in India, and therefore India could not become capitalist. And I'm not going to go into a rebuttal of uh, Habib's theories over here, but that theory conditioned a lot of the discourse in economic history for South Asia, which is why people who were interested in these questions, being people who were also invested in Marxist theory, they simply were not willing to turn away from 
what Marx's theory said ought to be the case to try and examine what really was the case. I think that's one reason why the historiography has gone the way it has. Another reason why the historiography has gone the way it has is that, and I assume this is the case for Pakistan too, but certainly with regard to the history on modern India, there is an obsession with the question of colonialism. And that is basically the question of, do we blame the British or not for everything, for partition, for economic growth, for lack of economic growth, for violence, for the caste system, for pretty much anything, there is a kind of unspoken and sometimes actually explicit obsession with what was the cause of the colonial enterprise, how did they manage to become the colonizers, and what was the effect. So there's a huge amount of debate on whether the effect of colonialism was negative for the economy or positive Was there a drain of resources or was there institutional change which enabled good things to happen and so on and so forth? And this has been, I think, for too long, the obsession with Indian economic history. It's understandable for the first few decades after independence, I suppose, because, well, it's the first few decades of after independence. But it is a source of some frustration for me that South Asian economic history to a large extent, doesn't seem to have grown out of this and started thinking about things from outside the shadow of British colonialism. The other problem, and one of the explanations for the obsession with the colonial enterprise, is languages. Higher education happens in English, so everybody reads English. And if you read English, you can easily go to the East India Company archives and read the documents there. But if you want to understand the nature of the rural economy of, let's say, Sindh or Punjab in the years around 1700, you're going to have to learn to read Sindhi or Punjabi, a dialect form from that period. You're going to have to learn to read the script, which is not the script that you might be sort of familiar with in the modern printed form. You're going to have to work with documents in archives, which have quite possibly not been worked with before, which might not have been properly catalogued, which unfortunately are going to be there somewhere in Karachi or Lahore, or God forbid, some awful place out in the sticks somewhere, rather than the nice colonial archives sitting in London. The fact is that the study of non-classical, that is to say, not Persian, not Sanskrit languages, vernaculars of pre-modern India, has more or less died, and there are very few people who are competent in those languages. The study of the scripts that were used is also not very active. The earlier archives, many of them were what became private archives of the former landowning or the ruling classes, and those archives have often not even been properly surveyed or catalogued. So there's a lot of basic issues over here to deal with the languages of the scholarship, the languages of the sources, the historiography, which has been obsessed with a particular set of questions, the skills required to engage in archival work, the fact that the archives themselves might be rather chaotic. And all of these things have prevented an engagement with these kind of questions. This is not to say that there hasn't ever been scholarship of this sort. They have, but there hasn't been anywhere near enough or as much as they ought to be. And I think that is something that others 
have uh, faced these challenges in their work and have complained about it. And myself, certainly, even the archives we do have, even from the colonial era, those are not well organized and well maintained, never mind the pre-colonial era. And stuff is, in many cases, literally just sitting there waiting to be read. That is an important place to conclude in terms of letting students know and letting listeners know that there is a whole universe of historical investigation that awaits. But I'd like to ask if you have any concluding thoughts about why history is important, why economic history is important. I mean, you began with some of these thoughts, but uh, you were saying something about how we should not give in to inevitability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what history teaches you is that everything is a result of a historical process. There is no teleology. There is no end goal. There is no inevitability. There were always paths not taken. The reasons these paths were not taken had often specific causes. Some of those might have been accidental. Some of those might have been intentional. But what that can teach us is that we are not stuck where we are. I mean, I'm saying stuck where we are because I don't think where we are is a good place. But even if you think it's a good place, you should be aware that it's not the inevitable end of everything. And there are other places where we might therefore go. I mean, you have to assume at a basic level that history is going to be accurate and there are facts that people can find. But what's more interesting is what you can do with the facts. The fact that, you know, some British person came to India in a particular year and bought some cloth is nowhere near as interesting as the fact that that kind of interaction set in chain a whole series of cultural, economic and political shifts and those shifts are still with us today. So it's thinking about how facts relate to each other and what those facts lead to and using that to think about what the facts of today might mean and how the facts of today might relate to each other and what they might lead to if we have the desire and the agency to try and change things. I think that is the value of history. It gives you something to think with I will just give you a little quote that I have adapted from Edward Said on something that he says about music, and I replace music with history. History thus becomes an enterprise not primarily or exclusively about more or less teleological authoritative narratives of the past becoming the present, but a mode for thinking through or thinking with the integral variety of human cultural practices generously, non-coercively, and yes, in a utopian caste, if by utopian we mean attainable, knowable, possible.